Good morning. Welcome to Life Church. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. It's great to see you today. Everybody enjoying their Labor Day weekend? Yes. Everybody's been kind of chill this weekend. Like just really super laid back and super just really. Is everybody awake? A little sleep? No? Hungry? Yes? I'll help you with that by the time the service is over. I've been craving eggs Benedict for like two days. I don't know what that's about. So well, it's great to see you. Great to have you here this weekend. And uh, again, welcome to Life Church. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. Mark, chapter 12. And we're ending this series that we're doing this weekend on seeds. And so Mark records only four parables that Jesus taught. Now, Jesus taught a lot of parables. Parables are stories with meaning. That's how Jesus taught. And, uh, and so he only records four of them. And all four of them deal with seeds. And they're directly the first three parables. Uh, the parable of the, of the seed, and the parable of the sower, and the parable of the mustard seed. Uh, this one doesn't mention seed at all, but yet it deals with seed. And I'm going to kind of show you that in a couple minutes. And as you get, you kind of find Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, I want to I go somewhere with you emotionally for just a minute, and then I want to come to this passage, and I'll come back to this emotional place that I want to take you. Everybody in this room has dealt with rejection at some level, in some case, some form in your life where you didn't make the cut, you didn't make the team, uh, she said no, he said no, uh, do you like me, yes or no, maybe, right, circle, you remember third grade? Okay, so at some point, there's some level of rejection that takes place in your life. You wanted the promotion and it didn't happen. You wanted the job and they went with someone else. Um, you didn't get the house, the loan didn't go through. Uh, you, you, you were trying, and sometimes you're trying to do good things. Uh, what you feel to be godly things, and doors began to close, and there's this sense of rejection, this sense of, of just kind of, just, you're just kind of out there. It's, it's this negative kind of gnawing, uh, internal frustration, emptiness that, that, that you feel. And whether you're a kid in high school or whether you are a, uh, a young adult or you're in the middle of life or you're kind of in those golden years, we've all encountered that. Uh, and we all do encounter that from time to time. And I just want you to sit for a minute and just whatever it is, because I'm going to come back to this in just a second. What is that? What was that experience? Was it a job? Was it a relationship? Was it not getting, getting turned down somewhere. I just want you just to have that kind of in, in the back of your mind because I'm going to come back to that in a minute because that's what this particular parable is all about. It's about rejection. And, and kind of some brute, kind of really plain, factual things about dealing with rejection, especially in your life as a Christ follower. And so Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, Jesus begins to speak in verse 1, and he says to them in, a, in parable, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit uh, for the wine press and built a tower and he leased it to tenants. Thus the, the title, the parable of the tenants. And then went to another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to come and get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty handed. Verse 4, and he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another servant and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. Verse 6, he still had one other, a beloved son. And finally he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. 
So they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? So Jesus is asking. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Verse 10, now he's going to quote Isaiah here. Have you not read in the scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord is doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. As you hear Jesus unpacking this, there's multiple layers to this, and I, I don't want to get bogged down a ton in this, but, but, but you have to understand a little bit of the historical context of what's going on. So you go to the audience. So who's there? Well, we, we, verse 12 tells us that the religious establishment is there because at that point they really want to, they know Jesus is speaking of them and they want to kill him. So who's a religious establishment? Who are the religious leaders? Well, basically in first century Israel, they're under the occupancy of Rome. Rome, basically when it would occupy a people group, it would allow them to have their own God. Rome, Romans were multideistic. They, they believed that there were many different gods. So to add another god to the mix didn't bother them. The fact that Jesus Christ claimed to be the Messiah, they, they were fine with that. They had no issues with that because they believed in multiple gods. So, um, and, and as long as there was no civil unrest against Rome, i.e. there's a revolution against Caesar, and you paid your taxes, they let you govern yourself. So the governing body of Israel in this day, where Jesus would have been speaking to, would have been individuals, men, part of the Sanhedrin. So there was a sect called the Pharisees and a sect called the Sadducees. And there were various uh, differences between those. But in essence, they kind of put together this governing body. So they were ministers, gov governing body. They were the authority. They were the power brokers of, 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 of Israel. So if you can imagine, the pastor is both the pastor, but he's also the mayor. He's also the governor. He's also the president. He's also the senator. He's also the House of Representatives. The government is a church, and the church is a government. It's all one and the same. And those are the most powerful people because they're the lawmakers, and they're also the people that interpret Scripture. Because quite a few of these people, depending upon their, because, again, you're into more of a class system, may not be able to read and write, and the interpretation of Scripture was completely left to the rabbinical school of the rabbis. So they would have been taught the Torah in their early years, but then as they got more like third or fourth grade, they would have gone, because they didn't kind of make the cut, they would have gone to do trades and various other things. And so those that made the cut became rabbis and thus became a part of this whole governing system, if you would. So when Jesus is speaking, that's who's listening to him, the power brokers. So there's a political layer to this. There is a biblical spiritual layer to this. And there's also a financial, um, powerful wealth layer to this because these were legacy people. Because it went family to family, much like you would think of like a, you know, powerful people beget powerful people beget powerful people. So it's this, this type of thing that's going on. They would have also understood the whole concept of landowner and tenant. So much like if you were going to go start a business and you go to a storefront to open a store, and um, let's just say you're going to sell eggs Benedict, because that's what I'm thinking about today. So you're going to open a breakfast place, and you're going to do that, and... Um, so you're going to do that. You're probably not going to buy the building. You're just going to lease that from the owner. And so you're a tenant of the leaseholder. So what would have happened, what happens today is that you pay the leaseholder, you know, uh, triple net every month. This is the amount of money that you, that, that you basically, that you give them uh, for that property. And then there's common services and so forth that, the, that the, the, the building owner provides for you as a tenant. 
In the first century, what would have happened with the vineyard, and again, we're back to an agricultural deal because it's very much an agricultural society, and that denotes some of the seed, which I'll get to in just a minute. But what's happening here is that the vineyard is left with the tenants. The tenants, my, they, 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 they take care of the vineyard. They, they grow and develop the vineyard. And then what would happen is when the harvesting of the grapes would, ha- would come, they would send a portion of that. The landowner would send a servant, and they would give it to the servant and send it back to the landowner. That's how they paid for the property because they're sharecropping in essence. They're, just, they don't, they're leasing the field to grow what they want to grow. And so instead of giving money, they're just simply giving a portion of the crops. Every time the landowner in this parable goes, they beat him and send him back, or they kill him and send him back. And they shamefully just send him back. It's kind of like they just, they just completely thumb their nose at the, at the landowner and, uh, and go on. And so Jesus says, what's going to be done? So at this point in time, they're kind of getting this because then he says, then he has a son. The landowner has a son, and he's going to send the son, but yet they take the son, and they, they beat him, and they reject him, and they kill him. Now, again, these were all educated men. These were all men who understood the Torah, and they understood the prophets of the Old Testament. So what's happening here is, is the vineyard is a picture of Israel, of the nation of Israel as a whole. The tenants are a picture of the rulers. There are those who would be this religious elect that are the governing body. They are the uh, religious uh, leaders. They're also the power brokers in Jerusalem at this point in time. The owner, of course, is God. And every one of these many servants that he sends are the prophets of the Old Testament that we would read. From the minor prophets like Habakkuk to the major prophets like Isaiah. Jesus will actually quote Isaiah in verse 10 and 11, which Isaiah was the most prominent. So in every single discourse in the Old Testament that's recorded, the man of God, the prophet of God, speaks the word of God to the nation of Israel, and they reject him. That was part of the, that, that was part of the plight of the prophet. It was a very lone office. And what would happen, though, is that the prophet would be rejected. Therefore, history would prove that the prophet was correct. So you've had 400 years at this particular point since the last time there had been a prophecy given to the nation of Israel. So there's quite a bit of time that's taken place. So all that's all been proven out. And so here's what they understand. I'm going somewhere with this. Here's what they understand is that every time these prophets of God came and spoke to the people of God and they rejected them, the prophets were right and the nation of Israel was wrong. The leaders of Israel were wrong and the prophets of God were right. So there's all these prophecies from the Old Testament and, uh, concerning the Messiah. So all of these men that are listening that day, the religious leaders of, of, of Jerusalem that day, they're still looking, they're looking for the Messiah. If you talk to an Orthodox Jew today, they're still looking for the Messiah. They believe that God will send his one and only son. They just don't believe it was Jesus. So what Jesus does when he, in this parabolic type of a way, in this parable... Uh, type of awake when he when he begins to inject the the son he elevates the conversation because he's identifying himself as the son of God they all know this they don't like this because here's what you got to understand about Jesus he was a revolutionary not because he was crazy or he was out there but because his way of doing things was about meeting the needs of the of 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 the of those that were less fortunate it was about meeting the compassionate it was compassionately meeting the needs uh setting captives free jesus did more to elevate the rights of women 
and people that were disenfranchised and marginalized in society than any other person uh, that, that you find in the first century. Quite frankly, more, more than anyone else has, has done in history. So, and he never held office, and he was never in that type of a vein, but yet he does this. So the reality happens in all of this is that he goes in, and uh, he uh, elevates himself to that point, and they understand all the parallels, that Jesus is the son, that God is the landowner, that they are the tenants, that they've rejected all the prophets of old, and that they were wrong and the prophets were right, and they want to kill Jesus. Because what he's going to do is he's going to take from them not only their, their need for their place in society, not to govern, because that's all part of it, but, but, but the religious side of it. Because Hebrews tells us that we now have a great high priest who's touched with the feelings of our infirmity. I don't have to go to a man any longer to make my sins atone for. I can go directly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy at any time. I can go directly to Jesus, which they would have understood that that's what was going to happen to who Jesus was. So Jesus is going, he threatens their livelihood. He's threatening their existence. He's threatening their power. He's threatening everything. That's why verse 12 says they want to kill him. But they couldn't because the, the, uh, the public opinion on Jesus was so strong at that point in time that people would have revolted against them. And again, Rome was fine with them doing what they wanted to do as long as there was no civil unrest and they were paying taxes. This would have created civil unrest. So Rome would have come down hard and they didn't care who Jesus was and who the Sadducees were, the Pharisees were, the Sanhedrin. They didn't care. They would squash whoever they thought they needed to, all the above if they needed to, in order to bring order, because they were not going to deal with this. So there's all this tension that's happening. Okay, get that. Now, let's get back. The last couple of weeks is where I'm going to connect the seed part of this. The last couple of weeks, we've covered that the seed, according to the parables that Jesus has taught, that Mark records, is the word of God. And that Jesus is the seed. John 1.14, for the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So Jesus is the word, and the word is Jesus. So the seed is the word is Jesus every t in, in all these contexts. The sower in every one of these three parables preceding this is about they're, they're followers of Christ. And there's four different types of soil, shallow, stony, thorny, and fertile. And, and, and here's what's in, important to understand. In every one of those soils, the seed is accepted by the ground, it dies, it germinates, and it brings forth a, a, a sprout. Now, it may not last long, it may get choked out, it may not have a deep root system, or it may completely produce fruit and be in fertile soil, but it always produces to some degree and to some level above the ground because the soil accepts it. And, and so with the growing seed, we, we, we know that we're to be called to be faithful. It's, job, job, it's God's job to make us fruitful. So I'm not concerned about being fruitful, about being famous. I'm just concerned about being faithful. God's called me to faithfully sow the seed, not to inspect the soil, to sow the seed, whether it falls on shallow soil or stony soil or thorny soil or fertile soil. That's God's business, not my business. I'm just to scatter the seed, to sow the seed, and that God will do that. And last week with the mustard seed, we learned that don't despise the small beginnings because the, the, the mustard seed was the smallest seed that the Jewish farmer would plant, but it would have the greatest plant as far as size and the quickest growth. So, so where is the seed in this parable? I'm so glad you asked that. So with that in context, this is the fourth parable that Mark, Mark gives us of Jesus, only four. In scripture, you see there are times where God is present, yet he's never mentioned. That 
he's active, yet he's never directly mentioned. The, the book of Esther is probably one of the greatest books to display this, is that God is there, yet he's never, he, he's, he's present, yet he's not mentioned in a formal sense. In the entire book of Esther, you see how es God uses Esther to save the nation of Israel, yet not one time in that entire book is God's name ever mentioned, but he's all through the book. God is present from the end of the Old Testament that you have in your hand, the book of Malachi, the prophet, all the way to the book of Matthew. There are 400 years where God does not speak. Does that mean that God's not present? No, he's present. He's just not speaking through a prophet or through a man or a woman of God. He's just silent, and he breaks the silence with this, new, with this first cry of this newborn named Jesus. So we see in this parable that, that, that this parable is a prophetic portrayal of what Israel will ultimately do to Jesus. They'll reject him and they'll kill him. Just as they have with every other prophet, every other uh, man of God that's been sent. Even though they, he's the son of God, they will reject him and kill him. And we know that Jesus is the word and the word is the seed. Thus, in this parable, the seed is completely rejected from the soil. I want you to catch that. And this particular parable... This is the only one. The seed, which is the word, which is Jesus, is completely rejected from the soil. So the seed, Jesus, is present all through all four of these parables. Yet he's not mentioned as seed in here, but we know that that's what he is because that's what he says and declares of himself. And John says that he is the word and the word made flesh. So we know it's all one and the same. And so this is what's being rejected. Here's the interesting part. In the parable of the seed, in the parable of the sower, in the parable of the mustard seed, in every single one of those contexts, in every single case, without exception, the ground, the soil, always accepts the seed. It may not produce much. It may get scorched and fall away. It may not have a deep root system and, and topple over. It, it, it may hit fertile soil and really do well. In every single case, though, the seed is accepted by the soil. But here, the soil being Israel, he's rejected. And, and so, in this context, this is very interesting. In this context, the disciples are hearing this as well. Every one of the disciples, except for John, will die the death of a martyr. They will be rejected because they're followers of Jesus Christ. They will be rejected because they've accepted the seed of God through the word through Jesus. Every single one of them. Matter of fact, Peter will be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified right side up because that's how Jesus was crucified. The only one that won't die a martyr's death is John, who writes the book of Revelation. And they will try to kill him and boil him alive in oil, but he won't boil. He won't, they can't kill him. Can you imagine? Um, so they exile him to the Isle of Patmos. And there he will die at some point in time as a, as a prisoner, but on that island, he writes the book of Revelation. And so Jesus is communicating to them something very profound. Just as this nation and this world has rejected every servant of God, the owner, that's come to the tenants, those that occupy the space in this world, so they will reject me, Jesus, the Son of God, therefore they will reject you. And there's a powerful, powerful, powerful truth in this when we, when we look at this. Because the parable of the tenant shows that even when you follow the Lord's command, the outcome is not always pleasing or pleasant. 
Even when you do what God asks you to do, it doesn't always work out. Even when you do what God wants you to do, and even when you do it the right way with the right motive, it doesn't always work out. Now, this really wigs people out because sometimes people go, whoa, 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 whoa. Come on, come on, Aaron. Do you believe the prosperity of God's word that he's making you the head and not the tail? He'll take the crooked ways and make them straight. He'll, he, you know, you overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of of your testimony. That greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. That God will open up the windows of heaven and pour it upon you exceeding abundantly above all you could think or ask. Yes, I believe all of that. But if you have a theology of prosperity, you must also have a theology of suffering. To be biblically correct. Look at the book of Job. Job did no wrong. He did no sin. Everybody left him. Everybody deserted him. Everybody in his life. And what does Job say? Says, God gives and God takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. It's the song that we just sang at the last. It's well with my soul, not because of the external circumstances, not because everybody's accepting my message, not because they've accepted me because they haven't. It's well because my joy is not something that comes external. That's happiness. My joy is something that God plants deep in my heart. So whether I am imprisoned, I am content. That's what Paul says. I'm in joy. Whether I am preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and I'm free, I'm content. It doesn't matter. Paul says to be absent in the body is to be present with the Father. So in the words of M.C. Hammer, the great theologian, you can't touch this. You got that? It all works together, people. I'm going to quote Bon Jovi in a minute. Just give me a second. I'm getting there. Here's my point. My point is, is that, is that my, my, I have to understand that in this life, I'm going to have trouble. In this life, it's not always going to work out the way I want it to. God gives and God takes away. And I love when God gives, don't you? I love when God opens a door and I get the job or I get the pay raise or I get the house. Come on, don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. I get the new car. I love that. I love when I got a little extra money in the bank and I go get a fatty steak. Come on, anybody? No? Ooh, come on, a little filet mignon, right? Come on, whatever that is. I I love all of that. But I don't like when I'm broke as a joke. And I don't like when, man, I don't have anything. And I don't like when people turn against me. And I don't like when when, when times get tough. And I don't like when things are kind of flat. And I don't like when it's just a rough time. I don't like, I like it when it's fun. I like it when it's exciting. I like it when it's kind of, it's growing. And it's everything in my world's moving up. And I mean, my life just looks like it's just a a trajectory. It's just up and to the right. I don't like for the flat times. I don't like the dips. I don't like the down times. But guess what? God gives and God takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And so when I'm going to follow Jesus, when I'm going to be a sower of the word, which is Jesus, there are going to be times where my message is going to be rejected. There's going to be times where it's not going to work the way I think it's going to. It will always produce redemption and salvation. The word of Christ will always produce redemption and salvation. God will always redeem. He will always restore. He will always save every single time, even when I don't see it. The 400 silent years in the Old Testament, New Testament, God's still at work. He's not dead. He's just not speaking right now. I love, I love, I love, I love, I love, I love, I love the account of Noah. Noah hears from God, goes to build this big ark. They've never seen rain. You have to understand, the water up to that point had always watered from, from the, below the ground. And Noah says, it's going to, water's going to fall from the sky, which they've never seen before. And I'm to build an ark that's large enough to basically hold two of every critter on the face of the planet. And I'm going to put the in-laws and the outlaws and everybody on the boat. You didn't want to go cruise for seven days with your family. Think about this. He's on that boat. And at least, man, you got a couple of shows and a few buffets there going 24-7. He ain't got nothing. 
but a bunch of stinky livestock. Can you imagine? Don't even get me preaching on that. I'm just saying, he builds all this, does all this, waiting for rain. Rain comes, they get on the boat, and God does not speak again from the time he tells him in a dream and what he's to do. God, and it, gives him, it speaks directly to his heart. God does not speak again to him until he sees dry ground. Do you know how long he's on the boat? Over a year. Around 14 months. Can you imagine the people going, so what's going to happen? What's going to happen? I don't know what's going to happen. Don't ask me what's going to happen. Can you imagine? I mean, those of you that are married, can you imagine asking your spouse, when are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? I don't know, honey. I don't know. Well, hey, you're God's man of faith and power now, aren't you? You know that went down on the boat somewhere. Like, you know, you're supposed to know all this. God spoke to you, and you're right about the rain. But, you know, even a blind squirrel gets a nut every once in a while, right? I mean, it's just that kind of a conversation. He's on that boat the whole time probably going, my God, where are you? Because there are times where God just doesn't show up and work the way you think he wants to, the way you want him to. You want to show up in your school, you want to tell everybody about Jesus and everybody gets saved. You, you want to show up in your office and you want to invite somebody to church and they go, yes, and they come in and they love it. You, you, you want to tell someone about your faith in Christ and your experience and you want them to just be, oh, this is amazing, this is awesome. But the truth of the matter is, doesn't always happen. There are times when you completely get shunned because of your faith. There are times when you completely get Heisman because of your faith. There are times when you're ostracized in your office because of your faith. There's times that you're going to be looked over for promotion because of your faith. There's times when nobody in the block wants you to come to the parties anymore because you don't do what you used to do because God's changed your life, and rightfully so. There are times when the world completely rejects you. Why? Because they rejected Jesus. And that's what this parable is about. They will reject Jesus in you. If you're going to be in Christ, they're going to reject Jesus in you. Jesus says, remember this. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. But because you're in me, they're going to reject you. They're going to reject the Jesus that's in you. And the question is, is what are you going to do in that moment? Are you going to be faithful? Or are you going to fold like a cheap suit? Are you going to be faithful to keep sowing the seed? Faithful to keep living the life. God gives, God takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Whether it's raining or whether it's sunny, whether it's snowing or whether it's 80, whether, whether everything is working out or everything's falling apart, am I going to have joy in the Lord and be full of the joy that's in the Lord and let that be my strength? Or am I just going to live on this, I'm happy, I'm not happy, I'm happy, I'm not happy, I'm happy, I'm not happy. Euphoric emotional feelings based upon me. People are going to reject the Jesus in you if you're going to follow Jesus. Now, if you're just a casual Christian and you just do church on Sundays, maybe Christmas, Easter, whatever, nah, no big deal. But if you're a committed follower of Christ, there are going to be parties you're not invited to. If you're in high school, there's going to be Friday nights you're going to be at home by yourself. There are going to be things that you don't get make the cut on. There are going to be trips that you're not invited to go to. They're going to be business ventures that people don't want to have a part to do with you. They're going to marginalize you. They're going to look at you. They're going to speak all kinds of manner and things against you. And what are you going to do in those moments? That's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. That's also part of the, uh, the deal. They're going to reject the Jesus in you. And they're going to reject you being in Jesus. They're going to reject, man, you're not as fun as you used to be before you went to church. Why do you have to pray over everything? Well, why do you give 10% of your money to the church? How, how do you afford that? Why, why are you going on a mission trip and taking vacation time to do that? They're going to reject you being in Christ. 
See, here's the reality in all of this is that the world in which we live in, we have all kinds of complex problems. And this is going to sound like such Christian ease on a Sunday morning from a preacher, but just hear me out. I didn't write the book. I'm just telling you what it says. The problem in this world with hate and bigotry and prejudice and bias is not a racial divide from black and white. It's not as external as that. It's not about humanity. How can you be so certain, Aaron? Because the Bible says that God spoke this world into existence and the fullness thereof and said it was good. God created man and woman and said it was good. And on the seventh day, he rested from all the work that he did creating the earth. If we in and of ourselves intrinsically, and being human, if the humanity is the problem, God would have never created us and God being perfect and right and all that there is and say that we are good if we're not. The problem, the issue, this is why we can't protest this away. We can't social mediaize our way out of this. I just created a word right there. We, 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 we can't legislate our way out of this. We can't buy our way out of this. The problems that we're dealing with this in, in this world is because, not because of humanity and the differences of humanity, it's because sin. Right. When sin entered the world, so did death and disease and divide and division. Because I don't care whether you're red, yellow, black, and white, striped, or polka dotted. At the end of the day, when I cut you, the blood's red. We're all the same on the inside. But the problem is we think, no, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't, don't take my joy away now. I, 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 here's the deal. The problem is, is that we try to legislate it, thinking we can, we, we can legislate this. So this is Washington's problem or Madison's problem. It's not Washington's problem or Madison's problem. It's a sin issue in our own heart. If you believe the Bible. For God so loved you and I that he gave his one and only son. It's that simple. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. For God sent not a son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Salvation and redemption comes. But what does the world do? They reject and they reject and they reject. Why? Because what fellowship does light have with darkness or darkness has with light? We want to just kind of give God the Heisman and we want to go on and we want to go, no, I'm okay and you're okay and why can't we get along and I don't know that I believe in God and I don't know if I believe this and this and this. And it's the same issue that Jesus is dealing with 2,000 years ago with the religious leaders of the day. We suppress God. The world does. Why? Because the message of Christ is the most liberating a leveling message that you'll hear. He does more for women. He does more for, for orphans. He does more for those that have been trafficked. He does more for those that, are, that, that, are, that have had injustices uh, of racial division and prejudice. He does more for anybody than anybody that's ever walked the face of the planet. Why do we repress him? Because the power brokers that be, they understand that their livelihoods are on the line, that their politics are on the line, that the religious buildings that have been made by men who call themselves men of God will be rubble and will be completely leveled because it's about Jesus. It's never been about a building. It's never been about a denomination. It's never been about a religion. It's never been about a politic. It's never been about legislation. It's just about Jesus. Amen. Amen. Woo. I'm really hungry now. And this is what I want you to understand. That when you're in Christ and he's in you, you will be rejected. I know we live in America. God bless America. I love America. I love everything about America. But at the end of the day, I'm just going to tell you right now, we're going to be rejected. 
And this isn't about us being perfect. None of us are righteous. No, not one of us. And our righteousness is not us. It's Christ. You understand that? When the enemy comes in and tries to accuse us of our sin, we just raise up, man, I, I, you're right. I'm flawed humanity, but I'm flawed because sin. Sin near the picture. I'm born into sin, and to sin I'm born, and to sin I die, as far as this flesh is concerned. But when I give my heart and my life to Christ, he redeems me. Not because of my righteousness or my right acts, but because of him. Thus, he's my righteousness. So when God sees me, he doesn't see me and all of my depravity. He sees the blood of Jesus Christ that covers me, my sin. And he sees righteous. And he says he's clean. He's righteous. And so it shuts the mouth of the enemy. But we live in a world that rejects Christ and that will reject him. There are parts in this world where people are dying for their faith. Every single day, people die just because they're followers of Jesus Christ. That parable is very true. There are places in this world where you're not persecuted, but you are prosecuted. Because this world is going to do everything it can to stamp and to stomp out the name of Christ. Because it threatens hell itself. When Jesus comes back to this earth according to the book of Revelation and he sets this place in order, he will have no need for anything but him. You understand that? There's no need for police because there's no unrest. Because the problem isn't humanity. We'll be there. The problem is sin will be gone. There'll be no need for a solar system and a sun and a moon because he will be the universe and all therein. That's why the lion will lay down with the lamb. There'll be peace. Because sin is gone. See, the problem isn't you. The problem isn't me. The problem is the sin in us. And Jesus comes and he takes the sin away. And the enemy of your soul and my soul, Satan himself. I didn't write the book. I'm just telling you what it says. It says he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Because I want you to notice, how does Jesus respond to the rejection? Does he power up? Because I would. I mean, if this was just me and they were doing this to me, I'd be like, hey, I'm talking to all of y'all over here. The Bible says he could have called down, not you people, I'm just, just right? He could have called 10,000 angels. Boom. That's what we do. We power up. I love, I love what he says, the pilot. Oh, I love this word. It's like a rocky moment. He says, the son of man his life isn't taken from him. Rather, he freely gives his life up. No man can take the life of Christ except Christ gives it up. That's why Paul is saying, look, to be absent of the body is to be present with the Father. You can't take my life, Paul says, because I've already given it up. You know what's going to change our world? It's not protests and activism. And I'm not against the, the American way of doing that. So don't email me about that this week. Although some of you need to get off social media, and y'all know who y'all are. I'm just going to say right now. It's not going to be about legislation and policy. It's going to be when we, who are in Christ, act as Christ did. Just love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. Turn the other cheek. Power down instead of powering up. 
Remember what Paul says to the church in Rome? What brings men and women to repentance? It's not the judgment of God that leads me to repentance. It's his kindness. When people with hostility come at you because of your faith in Christ, it's just to love them. I mean, I get it. I'm a pastor. So when I get on an airplane or I'm traveling anywhere and I'm in public, people want to get to the conversation. I don't like to have conversations because here's where they always go. What do you do for a living? That's when I wish I just like, like I'm an insurance salesman or something. I could just say something like that. I even thought about getting a real estate license. I say I'm a real estate agent. Just so I don't have to answer that question. Because as soon as you said that, it's like the walls go up. Or if they've had a bad problem with the church, they will cuss you a blue streak. I've had all kinds of experiences. Like, hey, bro, I don't know what happened, but I didn't do it, right? I'm not him. Or they confess all their stuff. And it's like, hey, I didn't, I don't, we don't have enough time for you to confess all that. The only time I've ever, like, played the God card on the airplane was I had a guy one time. It was on a row, and it was me, and, you know, it was one of those seats for three, and so it's me. I'm in the middle, so I'm stuck. When you're a fat guy and you're in the middle, that's a bad place to be on an airplane in the economy. And it's going to be about a two-hour flight, and he went by the magazine stand, and let's just say he got some very inappropriate reading material, and he was looking at it and looking at it. I had it all out. I was like, Lord, what am I going to do? So I pulled out that big Bible I had, that gold, flipped it open, had that big tassel thing right there, just right there. I'm just like, oh, gee. and I just started in Jesus' name. Oh, yes, Lord. He looked at me, folded all that up. I just smiled. <laughs> That's the only time, man. I'm not going to power up on people. Just love people. Just love people. Have people say, can I come to Life Church? I don't necessarily believe what you believe. You're welcome to come to Life Church. We're just going to love people. I'm not going to pull back on what the Word says. I'm not going to change it for you because I didn't write the book. I don't get editorial privilege. It's not my book. But the seed, the Word, Jesus was rejected. So will we be. And in our world, it may be that we're marginalized or we're forgotten or we don't get the invitation it may be that we're prosecuted at some point. I hope that never happens in this country, but it could. It may come to the point that we're persecuted in a physical manner. I hope that never happens. But that has happened in our world. But my job is to take the seed, which is the word, which is Christ, and to sow it. And not inspect the soil, even if the soil rejects it. I'm to continue to be faithful and allow him to be fruitful.